Our scripture reading this morning is first of all from Proverbs chapter 2, and secondly from Hebrews 12, and then I'd like to actually add a third one, namely a piece of Ephesians 3, and then our text is from Ephesians 6. First of all, Proverbs 2, 1 to 15, our text is Ephesians uh, 6, 1 to 4, Paul also refers to a father's instruction. Well, Proverbs 2 is an example of a father's instruction, full of wisdom in the Lord. Proverbs 2, verse 1, hear the word of God. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the path of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity in every good path. When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, Discretion will preserve you, understanding will keep you, to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked, whose ways are crooked and who are devious in their paths. So far... Proverbs 2, then we turn to, let's turn to Hebrews 12 next. Hebrews 12, verses 3 to 11. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You've not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as, my, as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits? And live. For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. 
And then thirdly, we go to Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 3, famous prayer of the Apostle Paul in which he talks about the fact that fatherhood has its name and its origin in the fatherhood of God. Ephesians 3 verse 14, hear the word of God. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of God which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then our text for this morning is from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 to 4, the Word of God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be dwell well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. This is the word of God. After the proclamation of God's word this morning, we praise God with the words of Psalm 144, stanzas 1 and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when we think for a few moments of the wider structure and nature of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I believe that it's basically saying that we need to have our heads on right when it comes to doctrine, church doctrine. Uh, Chapters 1 and 2 are talking to us about the glorious doctrines that flow out of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whom we are elect, in whom we are predestined, in whom we are saved and bought with His blood and regenerated by the power of the Spirit. All those things come out of chapter 1 as a kaleidoscope of wonderful doctrines. But Paul also knows that doctrines by themselves can't just stay there in our brains, in our heads. He talks first about our heads, our heads and our brains. You got to know those doctrines. But he also talks about our hearts. And chapter one actually ends with a prayer as well about how those doctrines need to be transferred from our heads to our hearts. In chapter 3, we read it too. He's talking about, he's again outlined in chapter 2, the glorious doctrines of the new life in Christ, and then he just prays. He says, my prayer is that this would be real for the people of God, because if it's not real, then it's worth nothing. And so we have that prayer that we read this morning. And if he moves from a head to heart, he moves next to our hands. 
which is a Jewish way, biblical way of saying, he's moving to the, to the practical things in our lives. The grace of God, you see, and Paul's all about the grace of God, makes a difference with respect to the unity and the purity of the church. He's going to talk about that first in chapter 4. It's also going to make a difference. The grace of God makes a difference in the, in the family. He talks about that in chapter 5, about marriage. Wonderful things he has to say about marriage, as well as Ephesians 6. And, and then he goes on to talk about the fight against the evil one and the armor of God and all these other passages. This is what it's about. Head, heart, and hands. It moves from those doctrines to our hearts, and it comes out of our hands and the things we do and the kinds of people we are. So that's where we are in, in Ephesians this morning. The grace of God making a difference in the family. Grace of God makes a difference in the marriage, in the family, in the church. And so on this Father's Day, what better gift to give to fathers than contemplation and reflection on the nature of children, the nature of their obedience, the nature of their love and dedication, and also the nature of the father's actual instruction within the family. You see, brothers and sisters, Paul has talked about the new society that is coming in Christ. John Stott calls his book on Ephesians God's new society. He says this is where God is going eternally in the heavens above to a whole new world, a new society. And he talks about, Paul talks about that in, first of all, in Ephesians 2, where he talks about how God has made one man out of two. The biggest social question of the time <coughs> for Christians was the division between Jew and Gentile. This is where Paul got into trouble because he was meeting all these Gentiles, people like you and me, into the Jewish church. And, and Paul says, you know what? The Jew-Gentile divide, the biggest divide in our age, has been obliterated. And so to today, every racial distinction is no more. The church is going to be a multi-ethnic, multi-racial church, and you better get used to it in this life because that's what it's going to be like in the life to come. And Paul says, as a result of that, there is now one family of God, which is determined by God. There is one household of God, brothers and sisters. There is one temple of God and one kingdom, the kingdom of God. Over there was Rome. Over there was Jerusalem. But Paul's talking now about one kingdom, not the Roman kingdom, not the Israel kingdom, the kingdom of God. It's God's new society he's getting us ready for. And really, the church... The church is to be an, a, a symbol, a microcosm of that new world that is coming because we live with new order and new harmony in this new society of God already now in every Christian church. And also our families ought to be a reflection of that new society. We live according to different values. We know our roles in the family. We know our participation, what we have to do. It's all part of that better world that's coming in Christ. And so this morning on Father's Day, it's good for us to reflect on these things. We'll talk about how Paul instructs us how to be families by the grace of God. We have a word from Paul, from God to the children, and a word to the fathers. Brothers and sisters, one of the first things we, that should strike us with respect to this passage in Ephesians 6 is that here Paul is addressing the children 
the youth of the church. In itself, that might not seem to be so remarkable, but think about it. Today, so much of Christianity is, 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 a, is an adult, is, is saying that church is an, is an adult-only kind of organization. You don't count until you profess your faith, and, and then in those churches, you'll also be baptized. Well, Paul says, children count. He addresses children in the Lord. Look at what Paul does. In chapter 1, verse 2, he addresses the, his letter to the saints in Ephesus. It means those who are bought with the blood of Christ, those who are set aside for the purpose of serving God. This is who he's do, what he's doing. And it becomes apparent that in chapter 6 that he also considers the children to be part of that church, part of that family of God, part of that household among the saints. The letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians, just like all the other letters, he expects those letters to be read in the worship services, and he expects uh, that whole families will come together for worship, and also because of that expectation, he addresses the children, children, and then he goes on. He's in one line with the Old Covenant. Wherein also, whenever God's people came together, the children also came together, even the little ones. The Bible says that again and again. And he's in one line with the Lord Jesus who says, let the children come to me. Don't withhold them. Mind you, there's also an important difference, an extra benefit and blessing. He says, obey children, obey your parents in the Lord. When Paul says that in the Lord, he almost always means not the Lord God, but the Lord Jesus Christ. It's striking. Paul never just says Jesus. He always uses at least two words for the, Lord, for the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus or Jesus Christ. Children are being addressed as members of the community, as children who can be spoken to, as people who have a standing with the Lord Jesus Christ and can therefore be told to live in the Lord's way in the family. And then what does he do? Well, maybe you know how in, in chapter 5, uh, verse 21, he talked about the result of, he says, be filled with the Spirit. And then he talks, actually, he has a way of showing that in Greek by way of all these participles, that the result of being filled with the Spirit of God is that we're going to be submissive to one another. And he's not just talking about, mother, about, about wives and about children and about slaves. He's talking about all those. Everybody in the church needs to be submissive. Everybody in the family needs to be submissive. There's even something submissive about the role of fathers because they don't just live for themselves. They live for their wives and they live for their children. There's even something submissive about the masters because they don't live according to their own power and because of their own wealth, they live also, they're a blessing also to the slaves. Be submissive to one another. Well, here then, he implores the children of the congregation to be submissive in a special sense. Even as he says to wives, you need to be submissive in a special way to your husbands. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives three reasons for this. The three reasons are nature, the law, and the gospel. Nature, the law, and the gospel. First of all, he argues from natural law, if you will. His point is, whether you are in his day a Greek moralist or a Stoic philosopher, 
whatever you are, even today, whether you are Chinese or European, whatever, you will acknowledge it's simply right that children should obey their parents. There is no culture ever in the world, in the world or in civilization that has not acknowledged that it's right for children to obey their parents. It will be an upside-down world if children don't obey their parents. Back in Romans 2, verse 30, Paul speaks about those who are disobedient to their parents. But he suggests this only happens to those who are so alienated from God that actually God gives them over to all their sinful desires. And this is one of their sinful desires, disobedient to parents. Our reading from Hebrews 12 made the same point. Verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. In other words, we thought it natural. We did it. We knew it was right. We respected them. And even more, Paul says, or Hebrews says, if you are left without discipline, you are illegitimate children, and you're not sons and daughters. To choose to ignore father and mother is to choose the life of an orphan. It's to fail to recognize how blessed we are in that we have a mother and a father to love us and care for us. It's to fail to realize God is loving us and caring for us as we live in the atmosphere of their care, their protection, their love, and their nourishment. So, boys and girls, why don't you, after church, when you get home, give your mother and your father a special hug because this is right. This is God's will. But secondly, he argues also from revealed law, that is, from the Ten Commandments, namely the Fifth Commandment, honor your father and your mother. <coughs> His point is that in the Christian church today and in Christian families, this is not just an option that you can explore if you want to. It is God's way. To honor our parents is to honor God. We suggested this morning that the words of the covenant are divided in, 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 in four commandments for God and six commandments for human beings. Well, the Jewish people actually had the idea that it was the honor your father and mother actually belonged with honoring God. It was five and five, because if you dishonor your father and mother, you're dishonoring God. If you dishonor authorities, Paul says, you're dishonoring God, because God is the source of all authority. And Leviticus 19, for example, Moses is told to say to the people of Israel, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, every one of you shall revere his father and mother, and to fail to do so in Israel was punishable by death. And so you really can't maintain the view that this is only an Old Testament thing. The Apostle Paul picks it up again and applies it to the New Testament community. Honor your father and your mother is a command that will exist to the end. But I find it also interesting to note that both Moses and the Apostle Paul talk about honor. Not about obey, but honor. I suspect that anyway, Paul, because of the Ephesian context in which many of his readers would have come from a non-Christian past, these were predominantly Gentiles who came from a non-Christian past, 
they, they would uh, want to highlight the concept of honor. Because you see, if you have a non-Christian past, if you have come to faith and your parents have not come to faith, there are many times when it's going to be difficult to obey them. If they don't serve the Lord and you want to serve the Lord, every Lord's Day again, you come to that question, do I do what they want and not go to church, or do I do what I want, what God wants, and come to church? There are, to obey is a less all-inclusive command than to honor. Of course, it comprises obedience. When he speaks about obey in 6 verse 1, he speaks about obeying your parents in the Lord. Christian children who are in the Lord Jesus Christ need to obey their parents in the Lord but he never tells newly new converts to obey them in the Lord. You can only do that if your parents also share the Lord Jesus Christ. There can be times in the parent-child relationship you can and must obey God rather than men. But then you really do need to make sure you are really obeying God and not just pleasing yourself. Children are to, not to obey their parents in absolutely everything without exception, but in everything which is compatible with their primary loyalty, namely to our Lord Jesus Christ. We obey in the Lord. But to honor is something that every child has to do with respect to his or her parents. Even if your parents don't believe, and you do, one of the ways in which you send out a Christian witness to them is by honoring them as parents. That's what's right. That's what God wants. But in the Christian family, to honor and obey parents in the Lord makes a whole lot of sense. Children need to be taught to honor and obey. It's a training program, says Proverbs. Obedience needs to be expected and taught. And even when you're 40 or 60 years old, if you still have parents who are alive here on this earth, you do need, you might not be expected to obey them because you're a new family if you're married, but you always have the commandment to honor. You've got to honor them to the day of their death, even if it costs you money, even if it's difficult and awkward. The command to honor is a command that abides till death parts you from your parent. To love your parents, that's ideal. Hopefully many of you experience the love of your children today. But to honor your parents, no one gets away from that without having an issue with God. But not only does both natural and revealed law tell us to honor our parents, so does the gospel. Because notice what Paul says, this is the first commandment with a promise. What is his point? Many have debated that. They wonder whether it really is the first commandment with a promise, because actually the second commandment also talks about promises, namely a promise that if you worship the Lord properly, there will be a blessing to the generations, to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep his commandments. But if you read Exodus 20, that, that second commandment carefully, you, you see that Paul knows his Bible, because Exodus 20 verse 5 doesn't contain a promise doesn't say this, and I promise you it will go well, but it says, it talks about a promising God. 
It's not a command. It's a description of God. God is a God who makes promises, and He upholds His promises. The God who tells His people not to worship Him in idolatrous ways describes as one Himself as one who takes His commandments seriously, punishing or showing love to many generations in response. So what is the promise? What is the gospel in this commandment? Paul says, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Or as the NIV put it, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Notice what the inspired apostle does with these words. Some things that you and I can never do precisely because he's an inspired apostle. In Exodus 20, the fifth commandment was very focused with respect to Israel's specific situation. God would give them a land, and in that land, if they honored their father and mother, they would live long and be blessed in that land. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. And indeed, one reason why Israel went into exile later was because time and again, they ignored this and other commandments. But what Paul does is, is he broadens the gospel in his command. In his writings, the land of Israel often becomes the new earth. But here it even becomes this earth. The promised land fades from view that you may enjoy long life on the earth. In chapter 1, he talked about the spiritual blessings, all the spiritual blessings the people of God have in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But here it becomes very this earthly. Also for the new covenant community, listening to God or disobeying Him will have consequences not only for the life to come, but even for this life. The blessing of God, we're all dependent upon that. We misunderstand the point when we become overly specific. It's not that he's saying to every one of you who obeys and honors his parents that each one of you will live to be 98 or 100 years old. It's more general than that. He's saying that also for God's people today and for the youth within the church today. You see, again, Paul has this continuity line between old and new covenant. Don't let them divide this. Paul says, if you think that you can disobey God and your parents today without consequence, you are really quite mistaken. There will be a consequence, even a consequence from God. Those who are older among us, have you ever gone to see what, ever gone back to see what happened to those who chose a different path? It can be a scary thing to go to high school reunions or inquire of former classmates 40, 50 years later as to what happened to so and so or so and so and so and so. It's a scary thing because so many people choose to depart from the ways of their parents, and then it becomes one sad story after another sad story, one marriage breakup after another marriage breakup. It can be very distressing. People with promise, people with the promises of God, one bad decision leads to another until there's a whole lot of ruin and devastation strewn in the paths of their lives. Paul has that in mind too when he adds also the words of Deuteronomy 5 and generalizes those words and says, that it may go well with you. Do you want a good life? Do you want a good future? Paul says, it begins with honoring your parents, that it may go well with you.
Social stability comes into communities in which each generation honors the generation that has gone before them, especially if they're still blessed to have parents among them. So boys and girls, realize this. There can be times when you really don't want to obey. You really don't want to honor. You, want to, you, you think sometimes any house would be better to live in than, than this house. Well, I think every child has that thought once in a while. But it's worth it, Paul says. It may go well with you. The way of God's blessing. You may enjoy a long life. You might continue to live as part of God's new society by the power of the Spirit. And because you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you know our Lord Jesus Christ, and you love Him, don't you? Well, then love your parents and honor them as well. Paul comes back to this, this, this earthly kind of thinking uh, later at times when he writes to Timothy, think of 1 Timothy 4 verse 8, physical training is of some value but godliness has value for all things, holding promise both to the present life and the life to come. The present life and the life to come. God is also talking about our life here, our families here. Paul has more to say. Besides a word to children, he also has a word to fathers. And let me point out here that Mothers are not entirely out of view here. In Hebrews 11, verse 23, the Bible mentions how Moses at birth was hidden by his parents. And it uses the very same word that Paul uses when he talks about fathers. And he, Moses, Hebrews wasn't suggesting that both of Moses' parents were male. So the NIV has a footnote here. The 2011 NIV has a footnote. Parents. Bless your children and give, them, and give them instruction in the name of the Lord. But given usage elsewhere in the nature of Paul's world, the translation fathers is probably be preferred, even though mothers are not out of the view. What does Paul say to them, to the fathers? It's rather striking, first of all, that Paul says nothing about how they need to exert their authority. And that's not because he doesn't believe fathers have authority, but rather it's probably because in his world it was unnecessary to say that, to emphasize that fathers should exercise their authority because every Greek and Roman and Jewish father did that. Fathers in those days already had a very authoritarian position and were more likely to overuse it than to fail to use it, utilize it at all. Neither Jewish, Greek, or Roman fathers needed to be reminded of this. In fact, it said a Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could sell his children as, as slaves. He could make his children work as, in his fields, even in chains. He could take the law into his own hands, for the law was in his hands, and he could punish as much as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his child. And yet that context said, honor your parents. 
So in that context, Paul says something else. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Or as the NIV put it, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Don't take the wind out of their sails is what the word actually means. Don't take the wind out of their sails. Let them sail along in life and be a blessing for them as they live their lives. The point is, parents can easily misuse their authority either by making irritating or unreasonable demands which make no allowances for the inexperience and the immaturity of children. They they, they look so big on the outside often, but they're kind of small on the inside and fragile. Parents may not misuse their authority either by harshness or cruelty at one extreme or by favoritism and overindulgence on the other extreme or by humiliating them or suppressing them or by those two vindictive weapons, sarcasm and ridicule. These are some of the parental attitudes which provoke resentment and anger in children. How many angry young men hostile to society at large, have learned all that hostility as children in an unsympathetic home from parents who really didn't know what they were doing. Surely one can't read this passage of Ephesians 6 without thinking about that passage in Ephesians 3 where Paul talks about the father from whom all fathers get their fatherhood. Then he talks about two things every father needs. The one is power, the ability to make things happen. That's what you want in your father, especially in a a world like the Greek and Roman world in which you had to have some authority and some power to get things to happen. But power and authority alone is never enough. Power and authority alone, in the hands of the wrong person, can be scary. It can even be abusive. But when power is directed by love, like it is with the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you ever notice in the catechism, whenever God describes, whenever the catechism describes the Father, it talks about His power and His love. Verse day 1, verse day 10, whenever it talks about the Father, His power and His love. Because you want a father, a father in heaven, a father in your family who can make things happen, but also makes them happen in and out of love. Because He loves you more than He loves you Himself. Well, that is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of us all. When God is like that, it's delightful for us. And it is as it ought to be. And so it's also in the family. Discipline must be there, no doubt, but it must never be arbitrary or unkind. Otherwise, children become discouraged. Conversely, almost nothing causes a child's personality to blossom and gifts to develop like the positive encouragement of loving, understanding parents. Just as a husband's love for his wife is expressed in helping her develop her full potential, So parents' love for their children is expressed in helping them develop theirs. I think the word flourish says it. It's what fathers and husbands do. They're not there to 
make it difficult for wives and mothers. They're there to help their spouses flourish in the family. It happens by power and love. And, and similarly with children, you want, to, you want to make sure your children just, just flourish because if they flourish in the presence of God, life doesn't get much better than that. And to that end, notice what also Paul says, instead of provoking children to anger, fathers are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Some delightful concepts here, discipline and instruction. The one word is, is paideia. It has to do, it has both a sense of education and discipline. The other word, instruction, speaks of the kind of verbal advice and admonitions that fathers and all parents have to be engaged in. Think of our reading from Proverbs where the kind of thing the father there does with his son. My son, listen to this wisdom. And he goes on and on and on and warns about poverty and warns about the loose woman and so forth. Together these words, education and discipline, are saying there's a teaching that has to happen and it has to happen in a controlled and planned kind of way. The task of rearing children is always, first of all, a parental task. Even if one gives much of this task to a school and to educators, bless them all, the responsibility rests with the parents, the fathers. The best school and the first school is always the home. The role models who matter most are always dad and mom. The question is not whether you are going to be an example. You will be an example. But it's possible you might be a bad example. But hopefully through God's provision, you'll be a good example to your children. For the discipline and instruction, notice, needs to be discipline and instruction of the Lord. And by that, Paul means, again, the instruction and discipline of the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> it really means behind this, and in you, you are busy with this. The person who you're busy with this is the, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're, the idea is to, to parent and to be a father in such a way that it's driven and directed and modeled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at him. Look at his power and look at his love and look at what he accomplishes even though he never had children. But we do this in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must always ensure that we are calling our children to live his ways and that we ourselves are living in his ways, then we will be a blessed example. Even in our instruction and in our discipline, it's in the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea is to do this in a controlled kind of way. One can exasperate one's children with excessive discipline. To discipline out of annoyance or anger is a dangerous thing. There's great truth in the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones on this point. He says, when you are disciplining a child, you sure should have first controlled yourself. What right do you have to say to your child that he needs discipline when obviously you need it yourself? Self-control, the control of temper, is an essential prerequisite in the control of others. Even broader than that, it seems to me that we should never expect of our youth greater heights 
more qualities than we ourselves have been able to reach and attain. Don't ask of them something you've never managed to do. Look at yourselves. But you can also exasperate your children, take the wind out of their sails by adopting a permissive, under-disciplining approach of this age. How will they arrive at the goal without the direction and the training and the rigor that parents can instill in them? To fail in this is to leave them in the sin and temptation in which the world and the devil and their own flesh rejoice. To leave them alone and to think that they will figure it out when they become older and make up their own minds is to deny the very covenantal status in which Paul appeals to them. The basis of the fact that their parental instruction is in the Lord Jesus Christ and as they receive it from you, they are receiving it as children in the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, it comes down to, to modeling Parents are to model everything they are in Christ to their children so that their lifestyle will be caught as well as taught. Caught as well as taught. You catch it because you see it in your parental instruction that you receive as a child. And it needs then to be goal-directed. The goal is the service of God, His pleasure, the pleasure of the one who gave His life for them to. The goal is not just make sure that they grow up to be kids who make lots of money and have good jobs. The goal is, will they serve God? This is a great book with the title, You Are What You Love. For hundreds of years, ever since Descartes, the philosophers taught us you are what you think. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. But the overriding message of this book, You Are What You Love, is Scripture doesn't say, think about God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Scripture says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Consider your life and you will realize you are more controlled by what you love than what you think. What we love is what sets the goal and the compass of our lives. As you raise children, you're not just thinking, do they know this? Do they know that? Do they know that? It's not information that leads to transformation and a blessed life. It is, what do they love? Ask about your little children. What do they love? What do they rejoice in? When you read the Bible to them, is it just a matter of indifference for them? Or do they love this? And is it evident they love the Lord Jesus Christ? And does that continue through adolescence and through teenage years? What stirs their hearts? You don't change behavior and attitudes simply by pouring new information into their brains. The bigger question is, what do they want? On what is their heart set? Proverbs 4, verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. It starts with parents guarding their own hearts. If education is to be caught and taught, what do we love as parents? And what do we show as parents to our children that we love material things, that we love success and prosperity, or that we love God? And we love the gospel. Do you want your kids to study the Bible? Well, do they see you studying the Bible? Model the very things you want to see in them. 
why should you expect to see in them things that you can't and don't do yourselves? It means make sure you love what you're supposed to love and help your children love that as well. A father who loves hockey has no difficulty finding ways to cultivate that love in his son and maybe in his daughters. Our culture bears witness to that. A Canadian society bears witness to that. A father who loves, a father and mother who love the Lord will similarly know how to cultivate that same love in the one who has so loved us. But it will take much love and much patience, much gentleness. It's striking Paul again and again. He's talking about cultivating men, cultivate men, brothers, cultivating the, the gentle side of our lives. He talks about wives, uh, husbands loving your wives. He's talking about, it's not just about authority, it's about cultivating the gentle side. It'll get you farther than all that authority. And so too as parents. Cultivate the gentle, gentle side. It will take much love. It will take much patience. It will take much gentleness. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. We are called gentle men for a reason. And it will take much prayer. For there's only one who can change the hearts of parents and the hearts of children. Sometimes when, parent, when children have gone long astray, parents will say, all I got left to do is pray. It's all I can do. And I want to say, no. The first thing you do, even as they grow up, is pray. Because these children are in the Lord, and you are in the Lord, and you want the power of the Lord God and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to direct them all the days of their lives. May God bless us in this. Have a great Father's Day. Amen.